what God is doing here. Um, you're in a series, When Pigs Fly, Do You Believe in Miracles? And uh, when Mitch said, hey, um, I know, it's going to be like that. That's totally fine. Um, when Mitch said, hey, if you come down in August, would you mind... Uh, teaching we're doing a series on miracles i was like that is awesome because for two two years over two years of my life i actually studied uh miracles in the gospel of matthew the first gospel and um basically i did that because i grew up in a in a tradition uh, with my mother she was radically saved um became a believer i was born in non-christian home and then one night everything changed when my mother met jesus and god started doing great things but kind of the older i got um and uh, i was exposed to more thoughts and more opinions it it, it it kind of got me into a point in my life where i was like okay what about miracles does God still work them? What do I believe? What do I think? And so I decided to do a postgrad theology degree, research degree, looking at miracles and just exploring, okay, what does the Bible say about this? And so what I'm going to try and do in about 30 minutes here is kind of give you the summary of, of two years' work. And I want to encourage you with a, a very simple idea. The idea is this. Look, when it comes to miracles, and we're talking about miracles of prayer today, and I'm talking about miracles of prayer because when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, what you would call edits or redacts the miracles of Jesus to make them prayer-like petitions. So in other words, he isn't concerned with telling history. He's actually concerned with inspiring followers of Jesus to realize that God cares about them intimately and that Jesus still has the power to heal. And so he edits the stories. He redacts them because he wants us to know God cares about you and me. And so the message today is pretty simple. Miracles of prayer occur when we are wanting to do three things. Dismiss the doubt, ditch the distractions, and get real with Jesus. That's the point. Matthew redacts, he edits the miracle stories of Jesus because he's not concerned with telling history. He's actually concerned with inspiring people to believe that Jesus cares enough about you to actually do something incredible in your life. But we've got to do three things. We have basically got to dismiss the doubts, we've got to ditch the distractions, and we've got to get real with Jesus. Okay, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 8. I want to uh, go through the story of the healing of the centurion's servant, and, and this will become important in just a moment, and we'll work with this, we'll make it work. Um, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, okay, familiar story to you, and uh, this is what Matthew says. He says this, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Who came to him? Have a look at the text. Who came to him? The centurion came to him. Okay, hold on to that. Okay, I'm going to read through the rest of the story, but hold on to that. A centurion came to him asking for help. Now, what does he say? He says, Lord, hold on to that. It's important. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, I'm going to read the rest of it, okay? For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, 
Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. It's a pretty simple story, right? We're, we're familiar with the story. But implicit in what Matthew says here is the, is the challenge for you and I to read this story and to do three things. The first thing that we're being challenged to do is basically to dismiss the doubt. As Matthew wrote this story, and as this would have been read amongst the communities, not a church, communities of churches, what would have happened as believers would have engaged with this story is that they would have recognized, hey, you know what, I need to dismiss any doubt in my mind. Now let me get to this. Uh, Romans 10, 17, familiar passage says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, in, Matthew t- in Romans 10, that passage is often used by people in churches to support the idea of sending missionaries out. But that's really not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, look, all of you in the church of Rome have come to faith because God sent me to you. I preached the word and you believed it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what happens. Now, all of us have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, if that's what we've done, because someone shared a message with us and we decided to believe the message. And so what happens in that moment is we've got this relationship with God, right? And everything goes really smoothly after that, right? It it really doesn't, does it? It really doesn't. Because what happens is you start to open your Bible... Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so you start to open your Bible and you're like, okay, where to begin? Right? One of the great questions I'm always asked, where should I begin to read the Bible? All of these theories about different places. You decide you're going to start at the beginning. And you start to read and you come across the story, Matthew, and you think that's great. And you keep reading and you keep reading and you keep reading. And then you get to Luke chapter 7. Same story. This one. Same story. Okay? When Jesus had finished saying all of this, this is the same story in Luke. Okay? All of this to the people who were listening. He entered Capernaum. Same story, same place. Capernaum, little village on the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful place. You stand on that, on that sea. You look out to the sea where Jesus would have calmed the storm. Okay? Where Peter would have walked on water and sank. You turn around and you just see the mountain behind you where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful place. Same place. Capernaum. Little village right on the water. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Okay, same thing, same context, right? Now have a look at this. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent what? What did Matt, who went in Matthew's gospel? The centurion. Who goes in Luke's gospel? Elders of the Jews. Uh oh. Wait a minute, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But wait a minute, these stories are different. Getting to the heart of the issue here, what is it? Contradictions in the Bible, right? How can I actually trust God when I read a story, and this story seems to happen differently in two different Gospels? If you go on, okay, in this story, you'll actually see something else. He sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went. And then we go here. The centurion sent some friends. Wait a minute. 
See, it's rather ironic. Hold on to this a second. Now, I'm going to get into what's going on here in just a second, okay? But this is what happens, right? We have this encounter with God that causes us to come to faith in Jesus, and then we think, okay, it's going to go smooth from here. It's going to be great. We have this, this kind of high. We start to open the Bible. We start to read it, and then all of a sudden we hit these things that cause us to question. Cause us the question. We notice the difference. In Matthew, the centurion goes. In Luke, it's the elders and the friends. And these differences between Matthew and Luke cause us to wonder whether the Bible can be trusted. And then we start to read the story. And what do we do? We start to wonder, okay, what really happened? We question history. We question whether this can be trusted. We question, is this reliable? It's called the historicity of the text. Can we, can we trust this thing? And, and see, here's the problem with this. If we're not sure whether we can trust the Bible, if we're not sure whether we can actually trust that what we read happened back then, then guess what happens? We start to wonder, right, can we actually trust? Can we actually believe that God is going to do this today? If I'm really not sure about back then, How can I be sure about today? This is a a big deal. Because last week Mitch said, hey, we've got to realize something. We've got to realize that Jesus doesn't do miracles because of unbelief. You, You quoted Matthew last week in Nazareth. Jesus doesn't do miracles where there isn't any faith. And so I find myself reading the text. I'm reading a story, and I see the story is different. And this is a story that kind of is supposed to inspire me to believe that God does do miracles. And when I read it, the stories are different. And so rather than inspire me, the deeper I get into the text, sometimes I'm realizing that I'm getting presented with obstacles to my faith. And I'm like, what do I, what do, I do with that? I'm going to address what's happening in the story because there's a very good reason why all of this is going on. I'm going to deal with that in a second. But I want you to engage with the emotion. Have you all had that experience? Right? I'm really really not sure. You're in need. You want God to do something. But you wonder if he will or even if he can. And then you come to passages like this and they really don't help. Faith, what we expect, okay, and what we get are connected. James says you don't get because you don't ask. But the problem is when I ask him, I need to believe. And sometimes I really don't. Sometimes I doubt. Now, here's the good news. Jesus may not do miracles because of unbelief or where there is no faith. But the good news in the New Testament is he does do miracles where there is something called little faith. This idea of little faith is the Greek word oligopistoi, which basically is a term that is unique to Matthew's gospel. He kind of creates this term, puts two words together. Any of you speak German? My wife is German. You speak German. Germans are really good. They put cat and dog together, and it makes a word called horse. Right? It's really not helpful when you're doing it. Matthew just kind of dumps these two words together, and he has this thing called little faith. Little faith. He also has this term called doubt. Uh, One of the most fascinating parts of the Bible for me is Jesus is being buried, right? He's died, he's been buried, he's risen, and then he appears to the disciples, and then he takes them up to the Mount of Ascension, and just before he's ascended into heaven, Matthew has this term and said they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
How on earth can you possibly doubt when the risen Jesus is standing in front of you? But they do. Okay, doubt is a state. Little faith, okay, is the refusal to act on the faith that you have. What's really interesting in Matthew's gospel is this. It is true. Jesus doesn't perform miracles where there's unbelief or where there isn't any faith. But it is also true that Jesus performs miracles for people when they have little faith. The question is, when you're in a situation where you've got reason to question, this cancer is incurable. What are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to doubt or are you going to allow your doubt to become little faith? Because Jesus can work with little faith. Not sure. Matthew chapter 8, very same passage. The disciples are on, a, on, the, on the sea, Sea of Galilee. The wind will come in, in Galilee through the, the tunnel, kind of tunneled through the mountains, and it will just whip up in an instant. And there's this incredible storm on this lake. And the disciples are in there. Jesus is asleep on the boat. They're afraid they're going to die. Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves. Everything calms down. And he looks at the disciples and he says, Oh, you of little faith. You know what happened? Jesus saved people with little faith. What about Matthew chapter 14? This is the one where they're on, a, on the water again. Jesus walking on the water and Peter, fool as he is, basically says, Jesus, that's really you. Let me walk on water. Uh, you know the story? Jesus, Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on water. And then he starts to look at the wind and the waves. And he, what? Doubts. Right? He sinks. Then what happens? Jesus looks at him, basically helps him out and says, oh, you have little faith. Oh, what about the story of the man? who is down in the valley while Jesus is up on the mountain with a few of his disciples. And there on the mountain, he's transfigured. The glory of God is all around him. And Peter and John, they just want to stay up there. And they say, Jesus, this is incredible. Let's stay here. And Jesus says, no, we've got to go down. He goes back down into the valley. And the man comes to him and says, look, can, can you hear my son? And Jesus says, what do you mean, can I hear my son? Well, I brought him to your disciples, and your disciples can't do it. And back then, if the disciples couldn't do it, then the master couldn't either. And so the man looks at him and says, basically, uh, I need you to heal my son. Can you? And Jesus looks at him and says, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. See, that man didn't doubt. That man had little faith. But what he did and what always happens in the stories with little faith is when there is a reason to question whether God can. Little faith is separated from doubt in as much as we're willing to act on the little bit of faith that we've got. Listen, dismissing the doubt is one of the most important things to experiencing, okay, God at working our lives. Dismissing the doubt. What I want you to know is this. God has not got a problem with doubt. Many people say the opposite of faith is doubt. No, the opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt exists because faith does. If faith were not possible... Doubt would be unnecessary. Doubt is the state that basically takes us. It's a road that takes us to a fork in the road where in this moment we have a choice. Am I going to act on the little faith that I have and walk towards Jesus even though there's so many questions? Or am I basically going to remain paralyzed and journey down the path to unbelief? God has not got a problem with doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief, not doubt. Doubt is basically that state of mind that causes us to think and to wrestle with two issues. 
two realities. I know God can, but will he? I know God can, but will he? The year was 2000. My mother was uh, diagnosed with a, a treatable but an incurable form of bladder cancer, basically tumors growing in her bladder. It was treatable, so every six months she would go, and they would see how, how much the tumor had grown, and uh, it was incurable, then they would just basically cut them out. went that way for eight years. In 2008, she went back to the doctor, they did the scan, and they saw that there was a second type of bladder cancer that was there, not just a tumor that would grow. There were now these, these kind of uh, tumors all over everywhere, these kind of cancerous dots all over the bladder, two types of cancer. Again, treatable but incurable. My mother was praying one day, and she sensed God saying, I'm going to heal you. This is 2008. Every six months, she went back. Nothing happened. She said, God, if this is of you, then you're going to do this. I believe that you can. Then she went back in 2014. And in 2014, the female doctor that she'd seen the entire time looked at the x-rays and basically said, the scans, and basically said, uh, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. 2014. My mother looked at the doctor and said, praise God, that's my mother. If you ever met my mother, that's her. Praise Jesus, I've been healed. To which the doctor turned around and said, I'm sorry, you cannot say that unless it doesn't come back. You cannot say that unless it doesn't come back. My mother looked at the doctor and said, but it's not there. And she said, look, this type of cancer may come back. It shouldn't be gone. This is it six months ago. This is it now. It shouldn't be gone. But you cannot say that God has healed you until it's not there. So we want you to come back in six months. Okay, now you've got it, right? You've, now you've got it right now. What is my mother going to do with this, this reality, this so-called statement? She believes that God was going to heal her. The doctor says it isn't there, but the doctor says you can't be healed unless. Because scientifically, of course, that's the way the doctor works in. So my mother goes back in six months, and that female doctor that she's seen from the year 2000 till 2014 is no longer there. No longer there. Every six months, she has to go back. And so from 2014 until last month, my mother kept going back to the doctor, and it was the same story over and over again. Not there. She went back last month, and that female doctor was there. First time in four years. And my mother said, oh, I'm so glad it's you. And the doctor looked at her and said, yeah, I was really interested to see you. Let's have, a look at these, let's have a look at these scans. And basically, they put the pictures up and she said, okay, this is what it was. Okay, remember, two types of cancer, growth and the splatter type. If any of you doctors, you know what I'm on about. I don't. Okay. But basically, she said, this is what it was. This is what happened in 2014. And this is what it is right now. Mrs. Rich, she said, you no longer need to come back to the hospital. The cancer is not there. And my mother looked at the doctor and said, doctor, I've been healed. <laughs> and the doctor looked at her and nodded, and a pagan, non-Christian doctor danced around the hospital room with my mother while the nurses looked on and wondered what on earth was going on. Now, what's the, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is my mother had a reason to believe, and yet she was given scientific reasons not to believe. And in that moment, she had to make a choice. What do I do with this? And she chose to dismiss the doubt and to continue to believe that God can and God does. And guess what? God did. Right? God did. We've got to deal with the doubt. But what we have to realize is doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is the state of mind 
that basically leads us to a choice. And the choice is, am I going to activate the little faith that I have or am I going to remain in this paralyzed state? Because doubt paralyzes you unless you activate the little faith that you have. Dismiss the doubt. And unfortunately, as believers, as we get into the text, there are sometimes reasons, there are questions, there are things going on that we don't understand. But the good news is, when we press into things like this, when we press into God, when we're in that kind of double-minded state, God reveals truths to us that we would never have discovered were we to have remained paralyzed. And this is, the, this is the second point of this message. The first part of it is Matthew wants people to uh, basically dismiss the doubt. Secondly, he wants people to ditch the distractions. Ditch the distractions. When we press through doubt, we'll start to discover things about God and about his word that we would never have known were we just to have remained paralyzed. So when we read a portion of the text, rather then inspiring faith, sometimes it causes us to wonder. But when we press in through the text, we start to realize there's a whole load more going on than we at first realized. So go back to the text, Matthew chapter 8, 8 and 9. Look at this, this is the Matthew version. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you to have, uh, to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, if you go back to the Luke story, okay, it's actually not the centurion who says it, but the friends. The friends say it to him. What's really interesting, we look at this and we say, okay, what really happened? But what you do is when you press in and you think, wait a minute here. And all of Matthew's miracles, nearly all of them are crammed into chapters 8 and 9. He pushes them all together. When you start to read Matthew's miracle stories, you start to discover that Matthew does something with the miracle stories. He does it with all of them. This is what he does. He removes non-essential people, non-essential places, and all of the details that are basically distractions. Every single miracle story that Matthew writes, he removes people, he removes places, he removes details that don't matter. Why? Because he wants his miracle stories to basically be a one-to-one encounter between a person in need and Jesus. Matthew isn't concerned with history in that regard. What he's concerned with is inspiring you and me to realize that Jesus did, Jesus does, and Jesus still can. And he removes the distractions. This week, as you, as, as you read your Bible, read some of the miracle stories in Matthew, then turn to Mark, turn to Luke, turn to John, and you realize that each of them does this. Everybody does this. All of the gospel writers. We're concerned with history. They were concerned with reality. They were concerned with what was going on in their congregations. So Mark, for example, when he tells his miracle stories, he redacts them. He edits them to show that, yes, God is compassionate and gracious, but more than that, God is all-powerful. You have weird miracles in, in Mark where Jesus is walking along, and he looks at someone, says a word, that something weird happens, and Jesus walks on. 
And it's like Jesus is this, this guy who's got this incredible power from an incredible God. In John's gospel, John has his miracles as signs. Jesus never heals a blind person to help them see physically. Jesus heals a blind person to help them see spiritually. They're signs. In Luke's gospel, the, the miracles, Luke and Acts, okay, same author, the miracles are taught in such a way that actually encourage people to believe that, and realize that the Spirit of God is at work. Even through the man Jesus, and the whole idea is, if the Spirit of God actually is leading the Son of God to do the works of God, why is that important? And I think I said this last time, because God did not take on flesh to act like God. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus to actually act like the sons and daughters of God. You and I should have acted, but because of the controlling power of sin, could not. Luke's whole point is that basically the Spirit of God in the man Jesus is doing incredible works. And we see the continuation of this in the Acts of the Apostles. So all of the Gospel writers do this. They're all looking at the stories and they're encouraging the community in one particular way. But for Matthew, what he is encouraging you and I to believe is that Jesus has, Jesus does, and Jesus still does. But in order for us to get there, not only do we need to dismiss the doubt and push through and activate that little bit of faith that we've got, what we also need to do is to get rid of the distractions. Get rid of the distractions. How many of you, when you've really needed God to do something and you start to pray about it, you start to think about all of the things that could possibly go wrong? Start to think about all of these other things. Matthew removes those other things in all of his stories. And all of his stories is basically a one-to-one between a person in need and Jesus. A one-to-one and a person in need and Jesus. Every single time. And yet so often in my life when I've needed God to do something incredible, I've been more preoccupied with the details than I have with my need and being honest with God about the way I feel about it. I was pastoring in Hamburg, Germany. Hadn't been that long. It was a church of about 70 people when I started. And, and the church over a period of six or seven months just boomed. It got to about 200 people. I was the only pastor uh, on staff in Germany. To pay a pastor $25,000, you need to pay 63, all the social insurances and everything else. So pastoral staff levels in German churches tend to be really low. And uh, I hadn't been there that long. It just really boomed. And uh, we had this kind of cycle with our board, you know, the elder board, you'd call it. We had a council, church council, they called it. And uh, we needed some new people on the board. Well, I hadn't got there that long. The church had exploded. And so we needed to replace the treasurer, the finance guy. So basically, the board had to do I said, guys, just be wise in who you put on the board because I don't know anybody. And uh, you know what? Typically, in a lot of churches, the pastor controls the pulpit. The treasurer controls, controls the purse. And as those, you know, the wallet, and as those two relationships go, so goes the church. So I'm like, guys, be really, really careful with this. Okay. Well, a guy called Thomas came on, and uh, he came on to the church council, and uh, he'd been on there about a week, and uh, he said, Craig, can I meet with you? So we met on a Wednesday at 5.30, I still remember it, and he looked at me and he said, Craig, it's pretty obvious God's hand is on you, and uh, that you need support. And I'm like, okay, I think this guy will be pretty cool, <laughs> right? That's really cool. And he said, Craig, this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to half your salary and give the other half to, the, to somebody to help you. I'm looking at this, I'm going, what? Firstly, in Germany, you can't, really can't do that. Employee regulations, okay, it's not the hire and fire culture up there. You just can't do that. It's illegal. 
but as he said that, my mind is going absolutely everywhere. And see, the problem was the very next day, I'm about to jump on a plane to go to Brussels in Belgium, a different country, and I was going to leave this guy sorting all of these details out, wondering whether I would actually still have a job when I came home. So Wednesday at 5.30, I called Tim, who's a friend of mine, lives actually not far from here in Anne Maria Island. He was in Hamburg at the time. And I said, Tim, Karen, could you just come up here? Vic and I really need to pray with you. What, 7 o'clock at night? And so we sat there, 7 o'clock at night, just praying, saying, God, what, what do I do here? I haven't been here very long. Relocated my family from London, England, over to Germany. And I'm like, God, what, what do I do? I, I really need you here to, to do something. And I was thinking about all of these other things, and Tim looked at me and said, Craig, what you've got to do is just hold on to a promise. God has said that he will build this church, and nothing or even the gates of hell will prevail against it. You've got to get on that plane. You've got to go away, and you've got to trust Jesus to build this church. I thought, yeah, that's a really good word, but you know what happens, right? Somebody gives you a really good word, but you still can't help where your mind goes. So I get up the next morning, I jump on a plane, I go to Brussels in Belgium, and I walk into the place, and no word of a lie, I'm at the counter just registering, and a guy comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder. He says, are you the pastor of IBC Hamburg? I said, yes. He says, my name is, and he told me his name, and God has sent me here today with a message for you. Here was a, a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. Do you remember those days, guys? None of you do, right? Three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk with a letter for your elders. Here is a printed copy. God has sent me here to tell you about a guy by the name of Thomas who was in our church, wreaked havoc in our church, and God doesn't want him to do in your church what he did in ours. And he turned around. He walked out of the room and left. Never seen him before. Never seen him since. Do you know what that told me? That taught me. When I'm in need and I've got all of these things that I'm thinking about, the most important thing is for me to press into Jesus, dismiss all of the distractions and realize that God does and God still can. God's word is true. There were so many reasons for me not to get on that plane, to actually stand there and fight the way the world fights. But God wanted me in a different country to meet a person I'd never seen before, have never seen since. In order for me to realize, God has said, he will protect me, he will build his church, and I can trust him to do just that. Guys, when we need something from God, we don't fight the way the world fights. We don't allow the what's and the ifs to dominate our mind. What we do is we deal with the doubt, we ditch the distractions... And we press into Jesus. And this is the last point. The last point in this is that Matthew, over and over again, wants people to get real. To get real with Jesus. So we read the text. We're overcome with thoughts sometimes. And there's a doubt we need to tackle. Then there are these distractions that are going on. Matthew eliminates them over and over again. There's not a contradiction in the text. The story happened. What Matthew wants to realize is, look, in order for you and I to get a a real answer in prayer from Jesus, we need to get rid of all of the distractions and we need to get real with him. What's really interesting, when you look at the miracle stories in Matthew, is that something happens. Have a look at verses 10 to 13 in Matthew chapter 8. It says this, When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham. 
Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed in that very moment. What's really fascinating about Matthew is that if you were to look at, at the Luke story, okay, you've got the, the speech down here, which the friends are saying, okay, and we've got a little bit more at the back. What you would notice, okay, it, what you would notice is that Matthew, in comparison to Luke and to Mark and to John, he shrinks the miracle stories. It's fascinating. His gospel is 28 chapters long. Luke's gospel is 24 chapters long. Mark's is shorter. John is in between those two. So Matthew seems to lengthen everything except the miracle stories. The miracle stories he shortens. He abbreviates them. But what he does is, in those miracle stories, he lengthens the dialogue. He lengthens the dialogue. While he removes the detail, he lengthens the dialogue. Think about that. You need something from God. What do, you, what do we typically do? We mention the details as if God doesn't know. It's as if God doesn't know. We, we tell him everything. God, not, God says, don't, don't you think I know all this? Matthew removes all the details. He removes the distraction. What he does, though, he lengthens the dialogue. He gets to the heart of the issue. And what we see in Matthew chapter 8 as well, your faith, centurion, is so incredible because it foreshadows what I'm going to do in the world. That those people on the inside who really should have known who I was and what I could do are the ones who struggled the most. But those on the outside, those Gentiles, you're just a type of... Of all of those, God, Jesus is saying to this guy, is basically using you to foreshadow what, I, what is going to happen throughout the rest of the world. He lengthens the dialogue. What, what's the point with this? When it comes to miracles of prayer, we need to understand the fundamental difference between Jewish prayer and the Western civilization, Western Christian type of prayers. Western Christian prayers usually say, if you ask God for anything, God answers in three ways, right? Yes, no, and? Not right now. Wait, right? Yes, no, and wait. That's what we're told. You can ask God, but God will answer in three ways. Yes, no, and wait. That's not the Jewish idea of prayer. The Jewish idea of prayer is actually based on dialogue and wrestling. And the more reformed you are, the more you have a problem with this. Abraham, Genesis 18. Abraham, I am going to send my judgment on the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah immediately and drastically. Are you okay with that? Abraham says, no, I'm not. God, would you do this if you could find 50, Abraham says, righteous people? No, I'll relent. Dialogue. Okay, Abraham says, what about if there are 20 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you judge sin then? No. And it goes, all, it goes all the way down. But the point here is, Abraham needs God to do something and wrestles with God, reasons with God, dialogues with God, pours his heart out to God. What about the book of Job? He's a guy who's suffering. He's lost everything. All his friends come up and say, there's something wrong with you, something wrong with your faith, there's some sin on the inside that God is punishing you for. Guys, if you've ever heard that, who can consciously deal with a sin of which they're not aware it's the Holy Spirit's job to make us aware of those things. 
And if he doesn't, guess what? That's probably not the reason. And then at the end of the book, God turns up to Job. And Job asks him this question, and God takes Job on a tour of the universe and says, Job, could you actually explain to me why the world hangs here without a straying? You physicists out there could probably do that. Job wasn't that smart. He couldn't answer that question. But what we have here is a wrestling, is a conversation between God and Job with regard to Job's pain. Let me ask you this question. When you are in need of a miracle, how do you talk to God? How do you talk to God? Do you pour out your soul before him? Do you lay yourself bare or does that seem too vulnerable? What Matthew does in his miracle stories is he gets rid of the details and he focuses on a one-to-one conversation and every single time a few things happen. Firstly, the person who needs something confesses Jesus as Lord every time. Lord in the Greek can mean a polite form of address like sir, but in Matthew it never does. It's kiri, it means Lord. It means I recognize who you are and what authority that you have. Secondly, what we see is that all too often there is some demonstration of reverence that has happened. Often they will fall on their face. They will fall to their knees. And every time there is this honest conversation with God that says, this is what I need. Let me ask you, what do you need? Are you dealing with a doubt? God's not got a problem with your doubt. He's got a problem when it paralyzes you. You need to do something with it. Are you willing to walk towards this compassionate, gracious, loving God who's shown his love for you in that while you were still sinners, while you were far off, Christ died for you? Would you commit to ditching all of the distractions? God knows the details. Pour out your heart. Wrestle with him. Reason with him. Dialogue with him. In Holland right now, we're going through the book of Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, we see the same thing. We see Joel wrestling with God because judgment for sin on the nation was supposed to come. And Joel says, who knows, maybe God will relent. Who knows? We don't know what God's going to do, but we know that God can. But if we don't give God the chance... Because we're immobilized by doubt that leads to unbelief. Then maybe he never will. What's going to happen now is the band are going to come back, the team are going to come back, and they're going to sing a song, Reckless Love. It's, a, it's an incredible song that, that just talks about how much God loves you. What is pretty clear when you read the miracle stories of Matthew is that God loved each and every person. Insiders, outsiders, people who were wealthy, people who had nothing, people from every tribe, every nation, and every color of skin. God loves. And because God loves, God desires to work. And as we sing this song, stand with me. I'm going to pray. As we sing this song, engage with it. Whatever you need from God in this moment, as this song is being sung, commit to dialogue with Him over it in the next week. Let me encourage you don't quit. Don't quit asking. Keep believing, keep reasoning, and God will work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that Jesus did work in an incredible way, and he still works today in an incredible way. 
Father, for those of us that are here today that are just looking at our details and our situation and and we just need you to do something, whether that is physical, whether that is material, whether that is relational. Father, there are so many reasons for these people to doubt, to remain paralyzed. But Father, as we sing these words, reminding us of the incredible way that you've loved us, I pray that we would take the next step of trusting you and walking towards you. And Father, we pray that you would work according to your might and power. In Jesus' name, amen.